Father, uh, <clears throat> again, we thank you for your word and the ability to be together, and uh, we ask that you would help us to focus on you and uh, the things that you want to teach us this evening, <clears throat> guide us as your children, and minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just saying there's a few of us here, and there's a few of us online, so we'll... Uh, Carry on. First uh, Timothy chapter six is where we're at. So we'll hopefully wrap out the uh, book of First Timothy this evening, and maybe maybe abbreviated study. It's a fairly short passage. Uh, we've already prayed. So First Timothy chapter six verse one. Uh, Paul again continuing to instruct. Uh, Timothy as the young pastor that he has trained up and sent out. Um, he's uh, admonishing him uh, in particular things that Timothy needs to know and, uh, and conduct himself in. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Uh, we uh, should probably think of uh, being a bondservant more along the lines of employment uh, in our modern culture. But uh, in their day, it was that idea of being someone's servant uh, for the remainder of your life. Uh, there were servants and then there were bond servants, so bound to one particular master for the rest of your life. <clears throat> and, you know, as we are employees or even career employees, uh, we should honor uh, our masters. And um, he makes that statement so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Um, you know, people are aware uh, when we are believers and we are working for them, and whether they are willing to admit it or not, they they have that understanding of, you know, what the Christian standard is. And if uh, we're violating that, then it defames our God, our King, and our Master. And we should be very aware of uh, serving the Lord when we go uh, to work and. Uh, blessing those that we serve. In verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Uh, sometimes there uh, is a, an attitude uh, with employees who are working for uh, Christian uh, employers uh, as though somehow they should be given special privilege. And, uh, you know, this is Paul saying to anyone that uh, works for, serves a, a believing master, that they should be careful not to uh, have an attitude uh, with that person. God blesses some people to be workers or employees and other people to be owners, business owners, managers, uh, employers. And, uh, there's no call for resentment uh, between uh, the, you know, in this case, master versus bond servant, or, you know, as we would think of it, employer versus 
employee. And the um, point of encouragement that Paul puts in this is you're blessing believers. If, if you have a believing boss and he has a family, then you are blessing uh, him and uh, his family, his loved ones, and uh, should be doing all that you can to uh, be considerate of them and hardworking. He continues in verse 3 saying, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words. So this does pertain to <coughs> what he just said about masters and bond servants and, and the employment. But he also carries it over, as he says, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness. So, you know, more generally, if there's someone who does not follow, consent to, believe uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ, uh, the uh, doctrine of the scripture, then, uh, you know, you, you have to consider what Paul says in the following. And that, I think that that's significant in our day and age because many people profess to be believers and yet uh, their uh, conduct is such that you can tell they don't actually hold to the doctrines of the scripture. They don't hold to uh, the teachings of uh, Christianity. This particular time, uh, it's interesting to me uh, <coughs> to see people like we were talking about who aren't in fellowship. And when you try to encourage people to be in fellowship, uh, they have lots of things to say from a worldly position you know, regarding COVID-19 or any number of other things, uh, but they don't hold to what the scripture says about not forsaking the gathering together of the saints, uh, which, you know, Hebrews clearly teaches. So, you know, that idea that we really should be people who place the word of God above, uh, you know, all other things. I think of the people we know who are in China, and, you know, you have citizens there that are outright breaking the law and sneaking in the middle of the night to go be in fellowship with fellow believers. And here, you know, just the uh, possibility of uh, offending someone based upon, you know, these social mandates and structures that have been put in place. People have abandoned being in fellowship. It's, it's kind of strange. So. Here, I think it's important that we sh we hold to the Word of God. He has some strong things to say about it, but I, I think it should encourage us to uh, hold to the Word of God uh, all the more strongly. So if he doesn't hold to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which... Come, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. I just think of all the different ways <coughs> that that's entered into our culture and into the church, uh, the way that uh, people become obsessed with, uh, you know, I just recently was having the discussions again about, uh, you know, the Nephilim from uh, Genesis chapter 6 and, you know, all of these different uh, ways that people view things, uh, you know, biblically has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with the core 
doctrine of Jesus Christ, and, and they're obsessed with the disputes, the arguments over words, interpretations of things. Uh, the envy and strife reviling evil suspicions that I recognize in that is <clears throat> very much like what we see the apostles combating in the teachings of the Gnostics, uh, that, that idea of I have special knowledge that you don't have, and uh, the way that people, uh, it's, it's rooted in pride, and, and that's where he starts. He is proud, uh, knowing nothing. It's so easy to get caught up and I speak for myself. It's easy to get caught up in that idea of I know more than other people. And as a result, you know, this great failure uh, comes in. Useless wranglings as he continues in verse 5. A man of corrupt or uh, minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Um I, you know, for the most part, as I've run into individuals that are this way um, and recognize this working in people's lives, you don't so much see that working out in their hearts, minds, and behaviors as much as the people that they follow. You know, they create these little niche uh, groups of Christianity and, you know, they gather a following under themselves and they're trying to gain they're trying to you know gain a following gain a flock gain financially out of the situation and uh, they're completely false is is the end of things uh, verse six now godliness with contentment is great gain and that's you know a point of discussion on a lot of levels and he's going to talk about money and we'll take a few, look at a few other passages in regard to this but the, the core principle, which we've talked about many times, is that, you know, a lot of Christianity gets this backwards. And I think of, you know, the, the corrupt televangelists. There are good televangelists, um, but, you know, the corrupt televangelists that are, are in it for the money. And, um, you know, they teach that message of health, wealth, and prosperity. And they're concept sometimes they present it outright other times it's sort of implied in their teaching the idea of you know you need to accomplish great gain money finances materialism possessions uh, that will generate contentment in your life which will either equal godliness or it will produce godliness is uh, their approach and what Paul is saying is that, you know, being godly, making that your focus and being content in the process equals great gain. And, you know, he backs that up in verse eight. I'll just jump there where he says, having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Uh, not even uh, food, clothing and shelter, just food and clothing uh, Our most basic necessities being met, then we need to have a contentment as believers. So take the whole thing in context. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The old cliche, you never saw a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You don't 
take anything with you when you pass away. And then verse 8, as we already read, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And that's a long ways away from what a lot of people who profess to be Christians function and live and, and conduct themselves in. They, they have a, you know, they would never confess it or make the statement that they want, desire more, lust after things, covet things. But in reality, through their conduct, that is, in, in fact, uh, the way that they live. That is, you know, where their heart and mind are at is that they, they are very uh, money and materialism oriented is uh, what they are desiring. He makes the statement in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Uh, perdition meaning wastefulness or uselessness. Uh, the simple desire to be rich. And my goodness, so much of our culture and so much of our Christian culture is focused around that. I, I mentioned, you know, the the wicked televangelists uh, that uh, promote this idea of health, wealth, and prosperity. They're they're saying, they're teaching, they're showing and demonstrating, and that they believe that desiring to be rich is a godly attribute. And that's super dangerous to take something that's. You know, that far away from the scripture and promote it as though it were a Christian belief itself. You know, you go back to what uh, Paul is saying in verse 3 if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, now drop down to verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, and it's there, just desiring it. Uh, just had a conversation Sunday night with a group that was here for Bible study about <clears throat> how, you know, we often think of people that are rich as being the ones who are obsessed with money, and it's, in fact, quite the opposite. Usually, the people that are most obsessed with money are those that are the most impoverished. They, they are the ones that buy all of the lottery tickets. They're the ones that go to uh, any occasion they can to try to win money. Uh, you know, they go go to bingo, go to Bino. You know, those are big things here in the state of Maine, anyway. And uh, you know that that whole idea of get rich quick. And Paul is saying that. The, the root of that being the desire to be rich is uh, really where the problem is. Uh, you know, temptation, snare, foolishness, harmful lusts, drowning of men, destruction, and perdition. Those, I don't want anything to do with any of those things. I don't want any believer to have anything to do with those. So further explanation in verse 10, for the love of money, uh, we often say money is the root of all evil. And it is the scripture that says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And uh, just the, you know what we say, that money makes the world go around. All these different things, uh, it is so corrupt and so destructive. The, the body of Christ should have the firm doctrine 
and understanding that, you know, money, promoting money, promoting materialism, uh, it's evil and uh, should be avoided at all costs. We should look to our hearts and see if we're compelled by these things. And if, in fact, we are, we should ask the Lord to purify us of these thoughts that our lives would not be destroyed and uh, wasted in the process. So verse 10, to put that whole thing in context, for the love of money is a, a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Uh, so many people that profess to be believers have uh, destroyed themselves or allowed themselves to be destroyed through the pursuit of money. I think of the number of Christians that I've known, not a huge number, but a number of Christians that I've known over the years who have placed the priority on their career. And as a result, uh, you know, nothing wrong with having a priority of their career, but they placed the priority of a career over their relationship with the Lord, uh, which automatically makes it that it's a greater priority than even their family. If if it's a greater priority than the Lord, then you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which means you're not going to love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, they get 10, 20, 30 years down the road, and now their relationship with their children is falling apart. And they're saying, you know, how, how is it? I raised my kids in the church, but now they live such godless lives. You demonstrated to them that your priority was money, not not the Lord. You know, if you have a great amount of money, but they can clearly see, you know, mom or dad's priority is, in fact, their relationship with the Lord. Well, then, you know, you've had things in proper order. But when the love of money has uh, produced, you know, this destruction and this wastefulness, uh, then we, you know, see marriages crumble. We see families crumble. We see children fall by the wayside and fall away from the faith. I, uh, reviewing this again today, I was reminded of a few passages, and I think of James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where James, who grew up with Jesus and understood Jesus' mindset about poverty and the shunning of money and wealth, James said, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, James 5, verse 2, your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, here we are in the final hours of uh, human history and there are so many important things in the kingdom that we could be involved in with our money, even supporting missionaries and works of the Lord. And instead, you know, pursuing worldly things and, and, uh, you know, materialism. And it's going to be a uh, condemnation of our own person and our own soul relationship with the Lord when everything is measured out. Similar mindset in Revelation chapter 3. Three, uh, the Lord is addressing the seven churches there through John, the seven letters to the churches, and he addresses the church of Laodicea. And most of us are familiar with that concept of how 
you know, it is a lukewarm church. And um, in particular, uh, the Lord himself says through John to the church of Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, what, what a condemnation of the church that uh, thinks of itself as well off. And in fact, it's uh, you know completely corrupt. And uh, look around at what labels itself as Christianity today and recognize. Uh, I, I, John, you and I were talking about you know some of these bands and the music that they produce. And I just thinking about like how wealthy some of those performers are (laughs) and they're just, you know, they sing these songs of, you know, I give it all. I give all to Jesus. I surrender. And you're left thinking like, really? Um, you know, I've noticed you live in a mansion. I noticed that you, you know, have all this incredible wealth. Um, you know, I mean, maybe they are, supporting uh, the work of the ministry to a tremendous degree. But it just, it's astonishing to watch people claim, uh, you know, deep relationships with the Lord. And and really, uh, I I recently have, I've watched in dismay. I won't name any performing artists, but I just watched in dismay as we've watched some of the greatest Christian musicians, worship leaders, uh, doing duets with some of the most corrupt worldly musicians that have ever existed. And everybody's like, oh, isn't that beautiful? Not really. I mean, how, how, uh, you know, how much of a blessing would it have been to the Lord to watch, you know, Elijah share the pulpit with the prophets of Baal, uh, you know, the corruption of that idolatrous practice you know, uh, simultaneously carrying on, it's, it's, it's corrupt. You say, you say you're rich, you say you're well off, but you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Jesus addresses the issue of wealth uh, very directly. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 23. He actually begins before that, but I, I'm picking up at verse 23, where it says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, Assuredly, I say, to you that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, we have that completely false teaching that's promoted a lot within Christianity, that the eye of the needle was a gate. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's taught that it was next to the main gate of a city. Other times it's taught that it was a small doorway in the gate. And that, uh, you know, the, it was referred to as the eye of the needle. And to get the camel through, you just had to take off all of his load and, you know, get him to sort of squat down. And you could force him through and then carry the possessions through afterwards. The, the idea of it's possible is, is what that false teaching promotes. You know, here uh, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 25 uh, in response to that, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Uh, you know, carry it on even further. Uh, Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. You know, the false teachers who want to talk about, oh, this gate, and you can force the camel through, want to quickly jump to, with God, all things are possible. The point is, he's literally talking about a sewing needle, 
and the way you would thread it with a needle. And how in the world are you ever going to get a camel through that sewing needle? He's specifically talking about that as an illustration, and that's why they, the disciples, react the way they do. And Jesus affirms it by saying, you know, that it's, it is impossible, can't be done. So riches and their deception and their destruction, as Paul is addressing this, and he goes on to address it further with Timothy, it's something we should be very cautious of, and, and for every one of us, verse 9, those who desire to be rich is what we should guard against. That, that should be a thing that we do not pursue. The cont- godliness of contentment, you know, food and clothing, uh, basic necessities are where our hearts and minds should be. Uh, 6 verse 11, but you, O man... So now addressing Timothy directly, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. A pretty simple approach to the faith. Run away from these things and run after these things. Pursue righteousness, rightness, being right with God and right with your fellow Man, that, that's, uh, when you get it that simple, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Being right with God and being right with man. Godliness, uh, being like unto God, um, behaving in a way that uh, would be pleasing to people and they could easily accept faith in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, love, not romantic, passionate love that the world talks about, things that are very often fueled by lust, the idea of selflessness, uh, of agape, caring for one another, patience. Um, you know, this this world needs patience. Uh, I was going to say more than anything, but definitely it's high on the list of needs. Uh, it's a very, very impatient world. It's a very frustrated world, anxiety-ridden world, and the world needs people that are filled with patience, gentleness, Think about, uh, you know, you can just watch clip after clip after clip online now of people engaged in road rage. You know, no patience and definitely no gentleness. They're, the world is losing its mind. The world is, you know, filled with these anxieties and uh, what it produces in their lives. Timothy, a minister of the gospel, a man who's supposed to be a um, an example to the church that he's leading. Uh, and Paul is admonishing him to be a person that is quiet, gentle, patient, kind, and loving. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, verse 12, to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You've, you've made these statements timothy people were witness to the fact that you said you wanted to follow the lord that you were you know, engaged in this faith um, it, the uh, statement that jesus makes on the sermon on the mount about blessed are the peacemakers um, i had to point out to my children a lot when they were growing up that you know proverbs tells us that any fool can start a fight It's not not hard to start a fight at all. Um, You know, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. 
a lot of times people miss the idea that you have to make peace. It, it, it isn't something that comes naturally. So when Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, uh, th- there is a process of attack that is involved in settling arguments and strife and conflict and jealousy. Uh, it takes an aggression to produce peace. You know, to prepare for peace is to prepare for war. Um, you know, being a peacemaker. Not, you know, that idea that sometimes is promoted of being a person who, you know, just wants peace or is peaceful. It's the idea of constructing it. We need to be people who are actively involved producing peace <clears throat> and um, you know that that doesn't always come easy sometimes there is conflict involved in that <clears throat> I have a coffee cup back there with water John would you mind grabbing that for me um, so this um, uh, thing that he's confessed to of faith I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot. Thank you. I'll take that. Uh, that you keep this commandment without spot, um, <clears throat> blameless, uh, until our Lord Jesus uh, Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. So, you know, Paul telling Timothy the same way that we watch Jesus go through this process. You know, think about the fight that Jesus was engaged in in the Garden of Gethsemane of, um, you know, not wanting to go to the cross and yet, uh, you know, willing to do it uh, even to the point of sweating uh, great drops of blood and enduring the abuse uh, that he went through in the beatings and the scourging. There was a fight involved in that. And, uh, you know, this is the confession. This is the witness. This is um, the faith that uh, we've been called to. These things are not easy to keep. Uh, without spot, uh, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in comparison to Pontius Pilate, who acted like you know he was the king of the world, and in comparison to so many down through time who have behaved as though they have you know, some lordship in this world, Jesus Christ alone is that authority. And then in verse 16, he also makes the statement, who alone has immortality. Uh, A lot of people don't like the fact that Christianity teaches that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life. Um. I mean, it would be arrogant of us to say such a thing 
if uh, we were uh, making that up on our own, if that was our own opinion about our faith and about our religion. But Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So, you know, the absolute truth that Jesus is the source of eternal life is something that, you know, Paul is telling Timothy, this needs to be central to your message and what you are believing and living by and also what you're delivering to people whom no man, uh, excuse me, verse 16, dwelling in approachable, unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So interesting here that once again, we see the coupling together of Jesus Christ with the entity and existence of God. You, you put that all together as one idea that keeping uh, this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing in verse 14, which he himself will or he will manifest in his own time he who is blessed and the blessed and only potentate the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality dwelling in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power amen you know if that isn't all one consistent idea about jesus christ then you could say okay in the one hand, it's describing Jesus. In the other hand, it's describing God. But it's one consistent idea that's describing Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, for the people that want to say, well, you know, Jesus is just the son of God. Uh, this is making it one entity, one idea, one thing. And, you know, that idea of, well, wait a minute, people did see Jesus. They didn't see him as God in the sense that's being described here. You know, the, the omnipotent God uh, emptied himself of his glory and manifest himself as Jesus so that he could interact with his creation. If he is in his full glory in the Godhead, uh, of his original eternal state, it's unapproachable light. No man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Um, having a conversation with a brother tonight about the word being God and dwelling amongst us from John chapter one, um, you know, I made the um, illustration that while, you know, someone can look at me and see my physical body, it's appropriate to say that my thoughts, and not even my brain, but my thoughts are the deepest, most part of my inner person. No one has ever seen those things or is capable of seeing those things. They can be expressed outwardly through my body, I have all kinds of ways that what goes on in my thought process can be presented, but in the end, my inner person can't ever be seen by anyone. It's absolutely impossible. That's a very poor illustration, and I understand that, but what Jesus was in the physical sense was the outward expression of what God is internally. 
So, you know, Jesus is God, and here we're getting that expression of God, as far as the Father, the Godhead, it dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Jesus was an expression of God and was, in fact, God himself. But anyone that would, you know, dare say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I have this, you know, um, personal relationship that um, makes God uh, something less than what he actually is. That, that is sacrilegious. Um, you know, I, I think of, I guess I'm kind of rambling, but, you know, what I'm trying to drive at is there is an attitude in modern Christianity you know, about how, like, Jesus is our friend. You know, he's just, he, you know, he's like, he's just like any other human being. He's not. He's beyond uh, anything we could possibly imagine, possibly understand. And this is an expression of that. Yes, he created the expression of himself, which is Jesus Christ. But that's not the fullness of God in the sense of there is a God that dwells in unapproachable light, it's impossible for any of us to see or understand. All things were brought into being by him. And when we stand in front of him, it's not going to be like, you know, slapping high fives with buddy Jesus. There's going to be a reverence and an awe that it's going to cause people to fall down on their face and worship him. Verse 17, command those who are rich, in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. So here, he isn't saying, like, to be rich is forbidden by God. He's clarifying that, you know, there may be rich people amongst believers. I think of uh, Joseph of Arimathea and uh, Nicodemus and Zacchaeus in the New Testament, all incredibly rich Men whose hearts and lives and, and their wealth was surrendered to the Lord. So if you are rich, here Paul gives some very specific commandments. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be arrogant or full of themselves, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Uh, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. You know, in contrast to keeping and hoarding and being a miser and expending it upon themselves, it should be flowing outward, is what he's saying. The riches, the wealth, should be, be you know, being poured out on behalf of God. And in that pouring out, storing up for themselves a good foundation for time to come. You know, the idea of building a house, building an eternity, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So rather than what Paul is describing previously in the chapter about, you know, this idea of, um, you know, their destruction and their perdition and their temptation and the snare and the foolishness and the harmful lusts here in contrast 
to that those that are wealthy, you know, laying hold of eternal life, doing good things, giving and sharing with others. Uh, to close the chapter out, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You know, a lot of this we've talked about all the way back to chapter one about the Judaizers who have come and they're undermining Paul and they're undermining Timothy and his ministry and they're all getting caught up in, you know, the law and genealogies and all of these, you know, idle babblings and contradictions and they all focus on that. Well, we know better. We're the ones that are knowledgeable. We're the ones that, uh, you know, should be the teachers. He's saying avoid all of that. Stay away from the empty, the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Um, I, I'm bothered, and I think good teachers of the scripture should be bothered by these little groups of people who you know, our conspiracy theory oriented, uh, you know, supposed Christians. And they gather these clusters of people around themselves. And I'm not even going to mention you know, any one of them specifically. Just that idea of they depart away from the rest of the body of Christ and they gather together amongst themselves and they want to argue about idle babblings and contradictions and, you know, names and genealogies and you know nuances of interpretations of language and words and you know the greater sense of what is understood in the scripture of you know those two basic commandments love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and thereby what that will produce in your life loving your neighbor as yourself are you getting up every day and starting your day in the word and seeking the Lord? You know, so you've got, uh, you know, some particular things about how you do that. Fine. But it's not a matter of, you know, you're the only one that has special knowledge that, you know, a select group of people or everyone else, you think they should all do it your way. The basic principles of, Taking up your cross, cross daily, denying your flesh, the appetites of your sinful flesh, and pursuing the Lord. Is that the motivation uh, of your life, is to love the Lord and be close to him every day? And does that produce in your life a desire to love and minister to and care for others? You know, that that is the, the core of our Christianity, <clears throat> is... Submitting yourself to the authority of God's word in such a way that you draw near to God daily and thereby you serve your fellow human beings daily. Your life is submitted to Christ. Is that who you are or is it, you know, this special knowledge, this, you know, you know, you have a better interpretation of the scripture than everybody else. You're the one who's, you know, the, the true elite, the elect, everyone should follow you. It's a foolishness. That, that people are engaged in. And we really want to be men and women who 
keep the simplicity of our faith the way it is rather than, you know, straying away into bizarre things and strange things. It needs to be the simplicity of what Paul is saying. Again, I'll, I'll read these last two verses and close with this idea. Guard what is committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. The grace of God. That's how we're saved. You don't deserve it. No one deserves it. And, uh, and to anyone that would embrace it, the Lord will give it to us. Salvation. He alone is the source of eternal life. So, you know, the hell statement, keep it simple, stupid. You know, just we really do need to just focus on the simplicity of what Jesus Christ has done for us and submitting ourselves to that. Timothy is being encouraged by his professor, by his teacher to, you know, stay away from all of these arguments and, and people that would argue uh, regarding things that are nearly impossible to ever know and, and focus on what we know Jesus Christ has given us, the simplicity of the grace of God, which provides salvation. Clearly that's holiness. Clearly, you know, sinfulness should not be part of our faith. But I just, I think about how many different aspects of, and I, I hate to keep using that term, but conspiracy theory level stuff, either from inside Christianity or politics or science that uh, so many Christians get themselves caught up in. The simplicity of daily taking up your cross and following Jesus Christ, denying our flesh and uh, making our lives all about serving the Lord and loving one another. That's, that's the simplicity of what, you know, a pastor trained by Paul is being instructed to teach others. So that's our study in first Timothy finishing out chapter six. We'll pick up with second uh, Timothy uh, next week. We'll pray and then, and for this evening.